Welcome to Let's Talk Farm to Fork, the post-harvest podcast that interviews people making an impact in the fresh produce sector. We'll take a deep dive into what they do and find out how they're helping to reduce the amount of food lost or wasted along the farm to fork journey. But before we get started, did you know that according to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, around 45% of the world's fruits and vegetables go to waste each year? If you would like to learn more about how you can practically play your part in maximizing fruit and vegetable supplies, whether you're a part of the industry or simply a consumer, visit postharvest.com and try out their free online course library today. Now, time for your host, Mitchell Denton. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Farm to Fork, the post-harvest podcast that interviews people of interest across the food supply chain. Today on our show, I'm joined by Andrew Heim DeVries from Wasteplant, who I'll be talking to about how their regenerative food waste farming solution is a local food waste, food access, and community solution for new development areas. So with no further delays, let's get started. Hello, Andrew. How are you? Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Good morning, Mitch. Before we get into it, Andrew, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to tell us a little fun fact about yourself that most people don't know. Okay. I think the big secret that most people don't know about me, especially here in Byron Bay, is the fact that I come from an art background. I spent 38 years as a practicing artist teaching at university. And the fact that I did lots of crazy activities, all relating to ecology, to soil, as well as being a painter, working oil painting and performance work, which has been very theatrical and very funny and pretty wacky, but all of it has indirectly related to ecology. Really? Okay. That's interesting. What style of painting are we talking about here? Are we talking about during the 70s and 80s, there was a particular trend of oil painting in large scale. And I was very much part of that international movement. And a lot of the content of that work was all dealing with self-identity, which was very much a part of a cathartic process of that period and probably still exists today in many ways. Yeah, wow. Fantastic. Okay, well, on that note, let's talk farm to fork. I'm really looking forward to discussing waste plant with you, Andrew. But before we do, I'd love to hear more about how you came to be an ecological designer and inventor, along with your history in composting waste with ventures like Compost Central and Subpod. When I left home at 16, during that whole period of going to art school, I was extensively recycling. We're talking 45 years ago. And it was a very natural progression for me, maybe because I had migrant parents and we were quite poor. But during the early 70s, recycling and composting for me was a very natural process. So right through that whole evolution, it became apparent to me that we were heavy consumers. In my experimentation of composting, I'm thinking to myself, here we have a waste product that's just going to landfill, and I'm composting it, and I'm building soil, and I'm growing food. What would happen if we were doing this on a large scale? And of course, my food was tasty, it was nutrition rich, and it was easy. And it became apparent to me that very few people then weren't doing it. And so I started building and creating different compost systems in my veggie garden. And that whole evolution 
of building up a knowledge base, looking at systems and where they faltered, and constantly looking at where the problem was. Where is the failure? As I experimented with commercial systems, it became apparent to me that there was lots of issues with composting systems, certainly in Australia, that weren't designed for our climate. So the progression went from there to experimentation. And then back in the early days in Fremantle, I started building these experimental systems. And then people wanted to come around and have a look. And then I was asked to do some classes and some school children excursions came about. And then one thing led to the other. And meanwhile, I'm still practicing as an artist. And the switch about 18 years ago definitely took place from leaving an art practice and venturing into the area of ecology. In this case, looking at all systems of recycling and upcycling because I could see that this was going to be a need because of the issues at hand that I was foreseeing about to take place in the world. And it was a very natural progression. It was a very easy progression. For me, it was definitely a very exciting area. And I was very much alone in that evolution because establishing myself as an artist to jump from this environment to in the area of biology, it was you know, I'm not trained. I have no degrees in this area, and most of it's self-taught. So the transition was challenging, but I was very excited. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it sounds like it's really been a labor of love for you. So continuing on from you telling us about your background and former projects, would you mind telling us about how the idea for Waste Plant first came about? In that experimental stage of building systems that are in ground, which was to me the next progression of composting in an urban environment or residential, the experimentation went on for about eight years. And then I ventured into compost buckets and worm towers. And then the invention of SubPod took place three, four years ago. And now it's a commercial product of the last two years. And so from a little domestic system, it was always in the back of my mind, what would happen if we build a larger system? But more importantly, how would it look? And was there a need? And of course, all of this was screaming at me saying, yes, 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 there is a need of creating an environment where these large in-ground systems could take place in a large scale. So we're looking at composting food waste, which is still a huge, massive issue worldwide. We're looking at soil degradation on a massive scale. And of course, the area of food sovereignty or food access, food nutrients, food affordability, as we know today, and even back then, for me, was predictable, was going to be a big issue. So how would Waste Plant provide a service and a need to create community, to create locality, but more importantly, it become a universal educational platform right across the spectrum? And then I'm thinking to myself in the whole area of biology to look at waste streams, what would it take to enter the space of black water systems and further issues. So Waste Plant becomes a massive, exciting platform. And that's it in a nutshell, Mitch. Okay, wow. There's a lot to digest there. I love that Waste Plant seems to be very people-focused and community-focused when it comes to being a food and waste solution. 
So what would you say separates waste plant from your standard communal garden then? So most community gardens, the composting component is the most neglected area. Yeah. It's usually infused with rats and cockroaches and ants and smells and odors, etc. And there's a lot of green waste in a community garden, similar to on a smaller scale at home. So what would happen if you create an in-ground compost system in a community garden, which is the big one? This is what's really crucial here is that when you deal with in-ground composting, you can actually compost, in this case, a raised garden where you're growing food no issues of rats and rodents and smells, and it's really easy. And sure, it's taking up 5% or maybe 10% of your growing area, but we're actually composting, which is great. We're building soil, and the veggie plants are growing around the system. So in regards to home gardens and community gardens, this is a great result because this is a huge problem in community gardens around the world where people are trying to compost and there's rat infestation and there's smells and odors and usually they're placed right down the very back of community gardens. And I've seen them like, Mitch, I could write a book how this area is a huge problem. And I'm thinking, in the case of waste plant, how this is actually brought up right up front. So the composting component then becomes, in this case, subpod or my large systems with waste plant become seating. And people sit on these structures that are on the edge of the garden. And most people don't know they're actually compost systems. So I've designed these structures now, within the case of waste plant, where they become classrooms, they become meeting points, they become facilities where the public engage in as a meeting point, as a classroom, as a seating area, as a dining area. Yeah, wow. I, I, I can only imagine novice gardeners having some of those nightmare encounters with composting and then just throwing in the towel. So maybe you should write that book on compost problem areas. I mean, you may have already answered this through that question, but I was just wanting to know what you think the biggest challenges with communal gardening and farming right now and how waste plant can overcome that. So with communal farming, we know that industrial farming science is telling us that it has maybe 50, 60 year period of sufficiency based on soil quality and current industrial farming practices that will cease to feed the world to a greater degree within 50 to 60 years. So we're looking at the destruction of nutrients in soil to take place in this time frame because we're increasingly putting in artificial fertilizers and we're dealing with an exploding population. So this is a huge issue. And of course, we're getting lots of coverage on social media all over the place. So what would happen if we were to start decentralizing the food system, which is essential. And of course, this whole area becomes quite complex because as industrial growing systems evolve and they're still evolving and it's still progressing, more and more people are unaware of how to grow food. And we're exploring in major cities around the world that children think that carrots are grown in Woolworths. 
And so, okay, then we're coming down to food access and food sovereignty. So if we look at creating food systems, and I'm thinking, why don't we create food systems from waste, in this case, composting? Because this is a big component of Waste Plant, is that these facilities will be located in a kilometer radius of living environments or urban environments. So a suburb that would have a waste plant, people bring their waste to it. And of course, we're also talking about growing abundance of food in the waste plant. And then there's food access to that kilometer radius of people living around a large-scale waste plant. So in the case of Byron Bay, in the inner area of Byron Bay, is about 3,800 people with about 5,000 tourists. I envisage that you'd need about four or five small 3,000 square meter waste plant facilities located around Byron Bay where food waste and carbon waste could be brought, but they also become destinations for food to be either purchased or acquired or donated. And of course, they become a community space. The current facility that I've designed in the industrial estate, which is increasingly becoming residential and yoga studios and cafes and so forth will be to take all the organic waste, create a food production environment that could be used for the homeless and related social enterprises. It will be a massive school excursion for learning from preschool to universities because we're working with universities to collaborate with us, which is very exciting. So decentralized food systems occurring in one kilometer radius. So we've got food access and in that people will learn because we have a massive education facility that will learn to take it home, to learn to start growing food at home. And of course, in the area of waste plant and how it evolves in communities, the collaboration with industry, individuals, science, philanthropy and investments, the space is expanding very quickly to make it more affordable, more efficient, more effective, as various people around the world are really starting to explore this to make food accessible. And of course, the challenges are in different environments. So if we go in, say, 100, 200 kilometers off the coast in Australia, we're obviously experiencing arid environments. And the biggest challenge there is water. So in the area of technology of water harvesting, and water irrigation, this technology is evolving so quickly. So Waste Plant is collaborating with individuals and companies around the world in this space, as an example. I really love the educational aspect. Uh, we at Post Harvest are also trying to really help reach people on more of an educational level as well. And just in regards to food waste and the methane that's released from landfills and and incorrect composting, it's really cool to hear what you guys have been up to and what the goal is within the community. So that's really cool. What would you say is the biggest surprise you've found with developing these garden ships for waste plant? The fact that the garden ships are basically a simple blueprint where the possibilities of adaptation, in other words, to adapt to different climatic regions, adapt to different needs, because a big part of Waste Plant is working with developers. So developers are building subdivisions and they're building suburbs all over Australia, all over the world. And of course, these developers that we're approaching are saying, Andrew, can we alter the design? Can we bespoke the 
infrastructure and the aesthetic. And I'm saying, absolutely. Mm -hmm. What is crucial is that you maintain form function. What is exciting is the adaptation of the guardianship. As you can imagine, different environments, like we're designing them for Indonesia, which has been an ongoing project based on my project in Sri Lanka three years ago, where the climate there is tropical. So the garden ships have to alter by design because of the humidity, the rainfall and the heat. You know, we're looking at materials, another example. The materials at the moment in Australia, we're using hardwoods. They're commercial hardwoods, but they're still coming out of our natural environment. And so we're looking at these sleepers to build these raised veggie beds, we're looking at hemp fiber sleepers. And we're in the very early stages of dealing with the company in Kentucky in America. So we're trying to find all the time various systems, methods, materials that are sustainable and are becoming more affordable, more durable, and a less carbon footprint. So from my point of view as a designer and collaborating in the near future, I just get so excited. To be quite honest, Mitch, I say to people, I wish I was 30 years of age, a lot younger than I am. Yep. <laughs> it wouldn't have even occurred to me that the gardenship designs would be a result of the climate they inhabit. But as I say it out loud, it makes perfect sense. Well, continuing on this line of thought, What's something that people seem to misunderstand about your line of work when it comes to food waste and growing fresh produce? When I talk to people about what I do, what we do as a company, I think the most immediate response is yuck, you know, compost, been there, done that, doesn't work. Big deal, bit of hippie stuff. Everyone's had an experience of composting. However, because now it's increasingly becoming a big issue with waste, soil, food, people are taking great interest. And of course, the conversation within people, certainly on an individual level, is shifting. And I've noticed this. I notice it each week, each month, each year, this transition of engagement and interest. And let's face it, Mitch, as far as climate change is concerned, the need in these three areas of the organic waste stream, soil sustainability, and food access, food sovereignty, etc., is very much increasing around people's radar. So increasingly more people taking a great interest. But we need to move really quickly from here on. I cannot stress this. If I'm going to be honest, cards on the table right now, I'm very guilty of some of those mentalities towards composting. Uh, but I must agree with you as I've seen that shift you were mentioning even take place within myself. There definitely seems to be an openness and more of a big picture outlook on some of those food and waste topics you mentioned. So then what would you identify as being one of the biggest pain points within the fresh produce industry and what practical measures do you think could combat this? Okay, so the biggest problem is we have an reliance on the food industry, one. We take it for granted. Hmm. Two, we know that industrial food production, food nutrients are weaning because the area of hydroponics and similar where there's a lack of minerals in the soil, there's a lack of minerals in the food, hence our intake having an effect on our well-being, our mental state, and it goes on and on. It's just, for me, there needs to be more engagement with how our food is procured, how it's distributed. Again, this is food access, food affordability, food sovereignty, 
as in its access to people. And with this too much reliance on centralized food systems, opposed to decentralized food systems, we need to grow food that's indicative of the area and locality and its season. There is a strong movement in regards to growing food that is conducive to its area. In other words, bush tucker or indigenous food, and that we should be going down this pathway. And I totally agree. We should be mindful of the fact that, you know, if broccoli is not growing up here, we shouldn't be freighting it in mass coming from the south, for example. And if we can cut these carbon miles down and be smart and intelligent about where our food comes from, how it gets to our dinner plate, it's all education, constantly education. And of course, a lot of this starts at the top end. So you can have these food sovereignty conversations at schools. But if it's not happening at the top level, we're just moving way too slow in this whole conversation. It's a big area, Mitch. I'm sort of covering a very broad area very quickly. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's great. I love it. I, I feel like we could really go down a long path around the topic of consumers being overly reliant on centralized food systems, but perhaps we'll save that for another day. So has the COVID pandemic and the lockdowns that have come with that, for better or worse, had any effect on your day-to-day operations? And if so, how? Okay, so we have many projects earmarked for Indigenous communities, commercial development, eco-villages, and aged care facilities for me to be there. creates a bit of an issue in case I get stuck and training up that person. So we are setting up structures with a colleague of mine who's based in Bali to set up waste plant. And so normally what would be doing as of early last year, I'd be spending six months there to set up this infrastructure and manufacture and learning and implementation. Uh, the project that I set up in Sri Lanka, I'm supposed to be back there just dealing with that component, the Middle East and France. So it makes it difficult because this is all great for me talking about all these entities and engagements, but we need to have mobility on one level. Setting up infrastructure to make that possible makes it slow everything down, which makes me pretty frustrated, where we can work very, very quickly if we just had that level of mobility and training. So it's pretty frustrating. This conversation that's happening worldwide, it's perfect timing. There's money from all fronts coming into the space. So this is creating a big problem. Yeah, I never really considered the training and the groundwork that would go into developing these on-location gardenships. So that's quite interesting. So as an inventor, what are some of the things you're researching the most right now? Okay, so the most important thing we're researching, maybe it's not research and more it's about implementation. So the biggest challenge for waste plant is dealing with health requirements to meet EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, and to meet the health requirements of councils. So we've been very fortunate, the three universities that I've reached out to in each faculty, each director of each of these three universities have expressed a personal interest themselves, as well as master's students and PhD students to work with us to monitor the soil, to determine the level of pathogens, etc., to meet EPA and council requirements. 
And because we're vermicomposting, the area of pathogens is greatly reduced. And so we are creating a blueprint for councils in Australia that where we can monitor, document extensively to get this off and rolling. These are areas that people have never ventured into. And so this is a big part of setting a blueprint for people in Australia and, of course, in the States and elsewhere. Mm, Absolutely. We at Post Harvest have been fortunate enough to also be in collaboration with a number of universities, and it truly has been a blessing for research and, and product trial periods. So keeping in the same vein, I'm just wondering if there is a particular group or innovation within the regenerative farming industry that you're excitedly keeping a watchful eye on. Okay, it's a great question. I would have to say, and Byron Bay sort of leads in this area, but this is happening all over Australia, is the level of interest and engagement with young urban farmers entering the space. Now, I get approached each week by either locals or tourists or travellers, more to the point, that come to me and they ask me, can you suggest where I can go to learn about growing food? And this is happening all over Australia and probably the same in Europe and the States, the UK, where people are wanting to learn to grow food. And there's lots of amazing, interesting individuals around the world, like Rob Greenfield, Michael Abel, and many others that are encouraging urban farmers where these young individuals are wanting to grow food in a market-style garden environment. And they're coming in as novice, but jumping into it and their skill set and passion and interest and working together collectively in a community environment. And in the case of Byron Bay, the council is actually employing one of these individuals three days a week to connect landowners to young urban food farmers to grow food on their land to sell commercially at the markets. The relationship there just needs to be established because the biggest problem in this area of young urban farmers is having land tenure, but not for six months, not for a year, but for up to five years so they can plan a crop, they can learn and engage. So, yeah. It's funny that you would mention young urban farmers because there is a pocket of young urban farmers in San Diego that I'm really hoping to tap into for this show. Uh, Apparently, San Diego, with its climate, has the biggest concentration of small farms than any other area in America. And they seem to be developing some of the most unadulterated farm-to-fork systems in the entire food industry. So I'd love to get some of them on the show to really pick their brains. But I must say, having you on has been a delight. So as we're coming to a close, I just want to ask you, what is the number one takeaway you really want listeners to absorb from this episode? One, I would connect with your community garden and get involved. Two, I would encourage your primary school, your preschool, high school to look at the waste stream, look at food production, look at education. There is a great resource of videos 
on Netflix, for example, that are dealing with ecology right across the spectrum, but also dealing in the area of the environment, the challenges ahead for us in the future. And there are many, many YouTube videos about growing food, understanding food. And the outcome of that is engaging with your local community. I think when you set up a full-on food garden, you might do it in your backyard. What I'm saying is do it in your front yard. Build your food garden in your front yard. And your neighbors will come by and they will be inspired and you start talking and you start growing food and you start swapping food. And then your other neighbors join in and then they're having more conversations. And this creates community. This creates locality. And this is priceless. So I hope that's what you do. Because if we have community, we have connectivity to each other. And Mitch, you can't put a price on it. I love that. Very practical advice. That's, that's a great note to leave on. Well, unfortunately, that's all for today's episode of Let's Talk Farm to Fork. Thanks for listening. And thank you, Andrew, for joining me today. Mitch, it's been a privilege. And I thank you for inviting me. If you would like to know more about Andrew and Wasteplant, check out the link in the description of this episode. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And don't forget to leave a review and share with your friends. Until next time, you've been listening to Let's Talk Farm to Fork, a post-harvest podcast. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Let's Talk Farm to Fork. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Also, if you would like to learn more about how you can practically play your part in maximizing fruit and vegetable supplies, whether you're a supplier, consumer, or anyone in between the farm to fork journey, visit postharvest.com and try out their free online course library today.